The Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This episode I'll be chatting with Tony Howe, Global Chief Architect, Defence and Intelligence at Arctis, and we'll be chatting about the role information is playing in warfare with our multinational coalitions. Tony, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you going? Yeah, fantastic. It's great to have you on the show. We've got lots of good uh, good topics to cover today. So uh, with that, we'll crack right on with it. Can you give us a quick summary of your career to date and an overview of the Arctis company, its history, services, clients, that kind of thing? Certainly. Uh, so I started my professional career um, as, a, as an architect, working across defence, intelligence, law enforcement. Um, I actually started my career in customs, um, of all places, and, and spent a good seven years working uh, in customs across intelligence, uh, the National Marine Unit, a uh, bundle of other areas, really exciting organisation, and then gravitated into IT security uh, and then made the big leap out into consulting. Soon after that, I worked uh, both with consultant companies as well as system integrators in both above the line and, and system integration type roles. And eventually, I found my way to Arctis, um, and I was basically their first employee. I'm now actually in my third stint back at Arctis, so I've kind of bounced in and out a couple of times. But I, I must say, I've, I've worked across a, a bundle of keystone projects across defence, including the, the single information environment, um, security architecture, the uh, SC2S, so, so the secure collaboration platform, and, and a whole bundle of other uh, big ticket items. Also, in my career, I'd, I've worked in, uh, in Big Four Consulting, so I was actually working for Deloitte for, for a bit there uh, across a, a number of areas of government. And I've also worked across a number of government agencies. So pretty much all the big ones in some capacity or other. Most of that work has been uh, enterprise architecture, really focused with information management um, uh, has been, been the primary interest. Uh, in terms of Arctis, our company was established to um, work on focusing on solving the problem of, of trust information sharing, um, as we've described it. We're experts in the use of attribute-based access control and policy-based access control, and we have deep experience in, in unstructured data sharing across defence and intelligence-type uh, customers. Um, so where we started was uh, in the bowels of a building in defence, uh, working on some, some very sensitive capabilities, um, and, and we've really spent a lot of our... Um, life as a company, uh, trying to bring the, those learnings and those capabilities out and, and try and make them more generally available because uh, we, we think, uh, or I think it's not just a thought, it's it's the reality of trust information sharing is one of the, the cornerstones of successfully operating uh, in a multinational environment. These days we are drowning in information and it's made even more complex when we try to share it with our partners in these multinational coalitions. So can you identify some of the issues and what's being done to improve the speed with which classified information is sorted and shared? Sure. Um, what we think, what we believe as a company um, is is one of the, the fundamental blockers uh, to effectively managing that particular information challenge is, is trust. But it's a combination of challenges that, that relate to that trust. The first is kind of that proliferation of data. Everyone's drowning in data. The first challenge everyone has is, is what to share, what, what's useful, what's valuable, uh, and, and how can I find it? But the other two aspects of, of this that, that we see as being a key challenge is, is ability to trust the data itself. Um, so working out not just, oh, I found the data I want, but is it trustworthy? Is it something that I would provide to our partner or, or should provide to our partner? 
The other side is actually the ability to actually trust the partners. So that's not really a conversation about do we trust the Americans or do, do we trust the Canadians, et cetera. That, that's for definitely a much more senior <laughs> group of people uh, who sign, who sign uh, you know, multilateral agreements and those sorts of things. Uh, but equally, um, it, it's really do we um, trust in the systems and the processes and, and the way that partners are actually working is compatible with the data that we want to share with them. In a bigger perspective around the changes to the landscape, naturally, you know, uh, defence and intelligence is experiencing the same challenge as the rest of the world is around big data. In a defence sense, there's an explosion of sensor platforms, so the ability to collect interesting and potentially useful data in, in a battle space, but also an increased use of that data across battle management systems and, and integration between those platforms to try and, um, uh, I guess, increase the speed at which with um, that information can be used uh, for a tactical or strategic advantage. I think more generally my concern is is what's changed in response to this. Um, I'd actually say, <laughs> in essence, in, in, in the last decade that I've been working around defence, not much uh, in terms of in terms of actually how we've progressed on this agenda. Um, a lot of it is is not from lack of trying. Uh, a lot of it is uh, fundamentally it's the same challenges that we've been um, wrangling with. But the thing is that we're kind of buried in a mode of operation that's all human driven, and so it all comes back to moving at the speed of humans and always having humans in the loop. I think a key aspect of change that's coming is 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 the more autonomous systems, the um, things like AI and machine learning, et cetera, to remove reliance on humans to um, make um, especially uh, more rudimentary decisions and those sorts of things. Uh, but I think there, there are probably four key things that they need to be in place uh, to be effective to embrace these capabilities. So the first is is ultimately being ready for it. So position for these capabilities, not from the perspective of uh, I'm ready to go and buy it off the shelf and plug it in. It's it's more actually once I've plugged it in, what am I going to do with it and how am I going to get that outcome? The next is is really the ability to exploit the data. The key challenge I see is is generally business areas think that we're going to turn up and define a business outcome through the magic of AI, for instance, when in reality, AI works most effectively when you know what you are seeking to get from um, the outcome. So that requires um, deep understanding of, of your actual business and, and what is valuable and what is available uh, to understand the environment. And then moving on to um, uh, the ability to improve maturity quickly. I kind of find defence is a very slow-moving beast and when we change capabilities, especially technical capabilities, it takes years for adoption to actually flow through the system and everyone to be comfortable with it. But the reality is that technology cycles are happening so fast that, that we can't afford years uh, to mature, to get the value out of out of those capabilities. And, and I think that comes to the last one. Defence has got to be ready to, to throw out old operating models. They've got to be prepared to cut with the past, move forward um, at pace. I, I kind of find it really interesting is, is you'd, you'd expect that defence, uh, especially in a military sense, um, are really good at this. Um, if you look at the Ukraine, the way that warfare is being conducted in the Ukraine in some respects is being made up on a day-to-day -day basis. And so therefore the winners and losers are, are those that can adapt uh, most quickly to that battlefield that, that's in front of them. I think uh, you know, what's going on on the Russian side of things are they are stuck in their old operating model of how they conduct warfare and the Ukrainians are adapting faster and you know, things like asymmetrical warfare and all those sorts of things are, are, are basically winning the day.
So, um, you know, I think it's a key it's a key learning in the military space that that needs to be brought back through the whole organisation to say we need to be ready to move on um, from old models. Well, we'll come back to a couple of those items that you've mentioned because they're definitely things that I want to talk about. But uh, in terms of working, you, you mentioned the United States, and of course they're one of our major partners, if not our biggest defence partner. So they've initiated their joint all-domain command and control initiative, aka JADC2. So that's supposed to synchronise efforts across US forces, global coalition partners. Are you able to tell us about this initiative and the impacts it could have on information sharing that, and how that would address those items you just mentioned? Certainly. Um, definitely for some of those listeners out there who may not be familiar with it, um, by way of background, JADC2 has been a concept that I guess has been bubbling away in the US and, and, and conversations with Five Eyes partners for a couple of years now. Uh, but importantly, an implementation plan for this was released in March uh, last year, um, which is really trying to accelerate that and put, put those, those things into action. Ultimately, the focus of JADC2 is is um, about uh, establishing end-to-end data connectivity and integration across the battle space. It's interesting because this follows on from similar efforts that the US have been driving over a number of years, including the global information grid, um, the three iterations of that, et cetera, which was very focused on the connectivity um, across the battle space. Uh, the key difference uh, uh, for JADC2 is it's really focused on achieving a, a, a large scale, a hyperscale integrated situational awareness by connecting the data across the battle space. And uh, so it's quite ambitious uh, in terms of what they're trying to achieve. However, there are some really important key enablers, uh, at least from my, my perspective, that are embedded within what they're trying to do. The first one is definitely moving and driving a zero trust architecture across the warfighting uh, environment, uh, ideally with a target of moving to data-centric security. Um, so, so this is flipping the model on its head around security, being focused on securing the networks in the infrastructure and those sorts of things, and moving to secure the data regardless of where in the environment it, it's, it, it is. On top of that, um, they're looking to adopt new technology platform models. Um, so there are things like um, containerization, you know, cloud-native capability, service mesh, data mesh, um, you know, these things that if you look at the big technology firms um, or, or successful organisations out there, they are gaining their success at scale through these technologies. And similarly, um, uh, USDOD are seeking to achieve the same outcomes. Um, but, but equally, when we look at um, containerization, for instance, it's about to have, have that ability to go from the micro scale to the hyperscale um, with very lim- limited change in how we deal with data and how we deal with software. Um, so it's really that kind of uh, spectrum of scalability. And further that, there's probably three more tenants. Um, the, the next is, is around identity and access management. Really, one of them is is leveraging high veracity identity sources. So that's you know making sure that we trust the identities that operate in the environment. From an access management perspective, it's moving towards managing the complexity and speed of access decisions. So it's this idea of moving things up to working at the speed of the machine rather than of the human and avoiding bottlenecks um, uh, around uh, access decisions. 
the last one, which is is probably the more foundational one uh, across the board, it's it's around information management, around automation, in, enhancing the ability to discover data, um, and very much uh, focusing on those uh, six Vs of of big data in terms of veracity, velocity, volume, variety, variability, and I think above all else, value. <laughs> um, it's it's yeah. interesting concept. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, that last one's very important. <laughs> yes, it's the most important one of all. <laughs> <laughs> so naturally, much of JADC2, well, the implementation plan especially, it's all classified. You've done great talking about it here in an unclass environment. Uh, but can you talk about the role industry solutions can play in supporting coalition partners so that they can meet these challenges, the emerging ones that we're seeing, as you mentioned before, in Ukraine, responding quickly, he who can adapt wins, that kind of thing. So can you talk about those and some of the challenges facing industry and in providing the support to the behemoth that is defence that's very slow to change? <laughs> Definitely. I'll, I'll probably um, take a slightly different angle. I'll, I'll talk about the things that I think industry can do to um, help. But I think, uh, firstly, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, there's, we're going through a historical shift at the moment. Um, you know, the what, what's been occurring is the last decade or, or la- almost last 20 years has been focused on counterterrorism, fighting those enemies, um, you know, within um, and, and asymmetrical type enemies. The key shift that's going on is is the, the political, geopolitical landscape is now moving to very much the traditional state-based actors um, and threats and, and, and really moving back, not directly, but but similar to, um, you know, the Cold War footing of, you know, large powers uh, that are basically um, operating uh, in competition with each other. And, and so therefore it's multifaceted uh, aspects of warfare. From our perspective, one of the key things and the key shifts um, that technology is enabling is really that movement to data-centric security. So in the past, if you go back to the Second World War, um, industry played a key role in the success of the Allies uh, in World War II. And so therefore, industry moving forward will always play a role like that and, and could well be the difference between success and failure uh, in, in the battle space. Um, from our perspective, a key enabler in that is, is obviously the use of data and, and, and information. And so therefore, we expect that the movement of data between across and, and through industry and defence um, is going to be quite porous and, and needs to be rightly so to, a, to enable the speed with which um, uh, industry capability can be brought to bear. So now we'll get to the kind of the three things that I think um, need to, uh, I guess, the opportunities for industry to help defence uh, in 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 that respect. I think the first thing is is working towards a, like what I describe as a two way lean in. Both defence and industry need to lean in together around these things. Like I think it's probably not um, untoward, and, and especially if you listen to a lot of the our political people and the defence strategic review, is we need to start adopt a war footing. You know, the conversation very much, and, and I believe this is what will come out of the strategic review will be: look, we need to be ready for war in less than five years. The reality here is it's not like defence really struggles to field any capability within five years. And so therefore we get in this position of, well, if we have to fight a war in five years, it's got to be with the things we have today. And and that's and that's going to be a, a real challenge. So I think one of the things that industry can do is obviously um, uh, work on its part about creating 
urgency around the need um, to uh, to move forward, which couples with the urgency to to move forward and challenge the role of defence uh, when it comes to engaging industry. And so I think there's an element around commercial models, uh, defence's role as just a selector of technology rather than the implementer. And then the last piece is around what is the role of the APS and, and ADF personnel in technology programs. Um, you know, I, I just say my observation, I've worked with some fantastic people across defence, um, some of the smartest people I've ever met. However, what I've found is is there's a, a predilection to um, working on technology uh, programs and putting the wrong person without the right skills in charge of trying to run a technology program. And that's, um, for me... It's counterproductive to the to the benefit of defence. Is sometimes defence just needs to hand over the reins and say, "You know how to do this. We'll let you do it." It's the same thing as you don't have defence personnel in telling them how to build a ship. You bring in the expert shipbuilders to do that. <laughs> um, yeah. Similar sort of yes. idea. <laughs> So I'll just move forward a little bit now and move into um, uh, the other two aspects where I think industry can um, really assist defence. The second one here is leverage. It's the ability to you know, operate and understand that the defence has always runs in a cost-constrained environment. As we move into that more war footing, it's more about what do we want to spend our money, money on? Is it bullets and guns and tanks and other things like that that, that are really useful in, in, in a military sense? Or is it contractors and consultants um, giving us advice, um, writing documents for us. Um, I think the reality will be focusing on capabilities that defence that benefit defence uh, most significantly. Um, Information is an interesting one because it's a bit of a double-edged sword. It's it's a black hole that you could pour money into, um, uh, but however, it has the potential um, to actually be a you know as as been described in the past a force multiplier for defence. Um, so it's been it's been frugal about how you spend the money. Um, but on top of that is I think industry can also lead the way and show defence how to leverage sovereign capabilities. There are a number of ca- companies. Um, uh, you know, and multinational uh, defence companies who are quite good at this in terms of identifying sovereign capabilities and helping to foster them into what what are really at scale capabilities um, that, that can meet the needs of defence. Um, I will say, as a company, um, Arctis, uh, our success and, and our progress uh, wouldn't be achievable without a whole bundle of uh, some of those companies. Uh, we have great alliances with uh, with friends like Talus, um, Oracle, DXC, Accenture, mm-hmm. KPMG, <laughs> um, and and so so I, I think there is an attitude there of of the big guys helping the little guys out um, to foster that 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 kind of sovereign capability. I think the last thing around leveraging capabilities, though, is an interesting challenge that's out there is reducing the burden on finite security personnel. Right now, um, you know, security accreditation, et cetera, everyone's, there's just drowning in opportunities to do an accreditation. Um, but the reality is, is is that where do we want to put those finite resources and, and looking at which, which challenges? And so if we go out there and have an explosion of different instances of different technologies that sort of do the same thing, um, we end up with a, a space where all of our security people are, are just stretched too thin and, and therefore we find it hard to have any confidence in any of those things. Now, the final piece that I think is is kind of critical, and, and I think there are some parts of the industry do this well, but I think it's kind of a story for everyone, um, is compelling offerings um, that the time is over for just 
delivering part of the solution to defence. I think industry needs to partner within industry to deliver end-to-end solutions to defence that, you know, has things like security built in, is focused on enabling those data offerings. Um, I think the previous position defence had of, of basically being the system integrator, I think, mm-hmm. um, I, I think uh, needs to change um, and that ultimately industry needs to be the integrator and bring integrated solutions to defence. So I think that's a key aspect that industry can do. And so part of that is um, I think the the term that, that that I've coined in the past is cooperation, um, which yes, is yes. <laughs> where you cooperate, but in a competitive way. Um, but you yep. need to cooperate of, across industry for the best outcome for defence, um, but there's still competition within that, uh, but, but it's still focused on the delivering that holistic outcome uh, to defence. I have definitely seen defence moving away from being the integrator and it's not just on engineering. You can also see it on the how they approach above-the-line contractors in CASG with the major service provider model. That there's a number of things going on where they're trying to step away from being the integrator. So, yeah, that is a, a definitely a high point there that industry needs to be able to bring these solutions to them. So with that, I'd like to shift gear just a little. And uh needs to be change, as you've said. There's... The, Defence has to reassess a number of things, change how they work. So how are you advocating for operating practice change to help ensure that protocols and rules don't get in the way of what technology has to offer? Absolutely. I, I think the, um, the, the the simplest of these things that we advocate for is around adoption of common standards. So in the space that Arctis plays around access control and attribute-based access control, NATO have a, um, a bundle of standags um, around this um, that are becoming a de facto standard across, um, I guess, friendly nations um, uh, in terms of how do we conduct um, attribute-based access control um, you know, what are the appropriate authentication methods, you know, these sorts of things. I think what what's actually happening is, is that industry itself has sort of moved down this line anyway uh, in terms of the way technology has evolved over the last decade. And so really common standards are becoming open standards that really are driven by you know who's adopting them uh, more than anything else, um, and so so what you'll see, and and you know uh, especially across the defence space is is a whole bundle of things that were developed for for radically different purposes being deployed for another purpose. Um, and an example of that would be Netflix. You know we'll say orchestration tools, an open standard. They've been made available to everyone. So from our perspective, is well if they're good enough for Netflix, <laughs> um, they're probably going to be <laughs> useful to us. So yeah. um, th- things like that that, that I think, but. That, that's kind of the boring stuff, the boring changes. <laughs> I think personally, the more radical stuff that, that I, I'm interested in is really looking at things around prevention versus cure. I, I think the the real trick, especially in access control around information, is enabling business but with, with appropriate guardrails. So this is enabling business to be flexible and changeable mm-hmm. and drive security themselves because my experience in, in defence is whenever I'm engaging with warfighter, they know their business. They understand the risks. They know what what they're trying to manage and and more often than not if you give them the right tools to do that they will achieve yep. the outcome needed generally they break the rules when what's available the guardrails um, actually impede them doing their outcome they're very resourceful people um, <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> as we as we want them to be um, but, but I think linking to that as well as well is like looking around uh, at information governance and and I mentioned before around the value um, of data and and I think one of the key things is establishing a value system of data that goes well beyond just security classification. 
it's looking at you know what is the value of of data in a given context that that when we're producing data especially large data sets rather than focusing on a singular purpose it's it's saying uh, how can we present this data um, to maximize its value its potential um, and make it more useful to the organization from an access control perspective that, that means that you know we need to move to access control decisions beyond security classification or really kind of role-based access and it's, it's moving into more complex decisions that are based saying in a given set of circumstances you know, should they have access to that information? And from our experience, that pushes into that needs to be driven by business rules that make sense to business rather than just these obscure security rules that nobody understands. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they write a document which says, here's how to apply the security assessment. And you're like, yeah, great, doesn't apply to me. And yeah, it's it's got to be a lot quicker and easier to apply. And as you said, from a business perspective. So we've talked about technology a lot. And I fall into the trap of, oh, it's technology, it'll solve this or it'll solve that. It's not a silver bullet, but technology to help and to solve. But it can't solve every problem, we have to admit, even even those of us who love technology and such. (laughs) Um, So do you agree with this, that technology can't solve every problem? And if so, what do you see as the limits of technology? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I've actually um, got an interesting story to tell. I, I, um, I spent a number of years working with a with a guy who um, was studying, doing a PhD at uni around um, uh, AI. Um, uh, is very interesting guy. Um, <laughs> uh, but but some of the conversations we used to have in the kitchen a lot was, um, uh, and he, and he's got this great story around how the sub goals are becoming goals. Um, mm. And 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 this is one of the the I guess the traps the flaws that we have in in the technology world is an example would be like email email was was basically implemented and was exciting because it created a way to simplify communications and improve communications you know asynchronously <laughs> you know electronically and you know that's awesome happy days um, however what it did is it created this massive burden and and the interesting thing is that the conversation moved on from how do I communicate to how do I manage my email? <laughs> um, yep, and and yep. therefore, they, that became the big problems, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and it's, it's interesting because as we move into newer technology like Microsoft Teams and those sorts of things is I cannot see any other outcome but the same as where we landed on email to say it'll come a point where it just becomes so much a burden to do email, we'll find a new way of doing it um, <laughs> and just move on. <laughs> and, and then just as we're going, this is becoming a burden, we come back to email because, you know. Yeah, it, it wasn't yeah. so bad. <laughs> it was a little bit manageable, um, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so I think so I think um, you know, kind of using that as as a bit of a, uh, I guess, an understanding of the the double double edged nature of technology is is it, it's only a tool, so it has the opportunity to create massive value. Um, however, um, equally, it can create a massive burden. And the burden has the opportunity to have as much negative effect as as those positive effects. And so a lot of it comes down to your readiness to realize the value through using technology, which kind of brings me to another point, which is a, is between disruption versus transformation. So with my enterprise architecture hat on um, and having been on a number of transformation journeys um, <laughs> yeah. in government, <laughs> um, uh, like there's a significant focus at the moment on um, the adoption or consideration of disruptive technologies. Um, I think uh, it's really key um, that the disruption itself is not transformation, that ultimately what disruptive technologies and capabilities present 
a massive potential for upside, but equally with heightened risk of burden. And I think that's a that's a key aspect of, yeah, you can look at Uber and say, hey, they're doing a great job compared to taxis. You know, we're saving money and, you know, all that sort of thing. It's so easy to, to, to book a, a, you know, an Uber. Um, but there's a total downside of of that that nobody thought of, nobody imagined, and and governments are now struggling with in terms of the compliance, the management, the all of these things that undermine it. Um, now it was really good because it was disruptive and, and and can do that, and governments looking for those opportunities to disrupt. But in itself, that's not transformational. I think on the converse of that is looking at um, the emerging approaches to technology um, that are coming out now, um, and there's some really exciting ones out and about. The one that I, I get most excited about is data mesh. Um, so this is the concept of of moving uh, is changing the operating model around data, and uh, you know for me that journey and and the experience and and, and that of organisations trying to adopt this is you're talking about like a seven year or seven to ten year journey to go from where you are today to adoption and maturity of um, data mesh where you're probably getting the full value out of what you're doing through a data mesh. But within that technology um, has probably evolved. Maybe we'll go through 14 different cycles or or more, 20 <laughs> cycles of technology before then. And so one of the challenges you have for a transformation is, is by the time you get to the point where you're realizing value out of the transformation, um, it, it may have been disrupted by the technology that makes the reasons for that transformation um, now moot. And, and I think I think that's a key consideration of any technology journey that you're going on. And, and that's where I think organizations should really be careful about the, the concept of transformation. And transformation is something you do to your operating model. Technology, if you're just wanting to do something disruptive or make a change in your technology stakes, I think technology should be focused on being agile, adaptive, ready to rip and replace uh, at a moment's notice. Um, and, and I think that's one of the changes that you're not, you know, government needs to move faster in delivering technology because by the time you run a three-year project of implementing something, it could be obsolete. <laughs> um, Correct. And, yeah. and, and often is. <laughs> and, and often is. Um, and that's, you know, all the other constraints from the outside in terms of acquisition policies and mm-hmm. government procurement and competition and all of these things, which I think circles back to the early part of our conversation around moving into that war footing. I really don't think, you know, the US turned up to the Ford factory and said, look, we're going to go through a competitive acquisition process about you building us some tanks. You know, I, I think the answer was actually, how many tanks can you build and how quickly can you get them out? And we're going to go to every manufacturer who might be able to yep. build us tanks to get them. So it, it's exactly. it's sort of a, you know, I think there's a big mindset shift that's required and and, and, and it's not only to the technology sector, but I think um, in defence, it's a really big opportunity uh, for, for the, t- the technologists in defence to, to take the lead and move to a new world and be leaders in that. One last question to wrap it up. We've already talked about technology can't solve everything, some of the problems that are around it when it's being implemented and so on. Crystal ball time. You're looking forward. What have we got now? What's coming? What could be coming? And so what are your views on the future issues that technology will be causing for defence? What's going to be the disruptors that you think coming up? We've already mentioned AI and machine learning. There's quantum. There's a number of other concepts and technologies out there. Are they keeping you awake at night? Yeah, look, I'll start with AI and ML. Um, I think uh, there's three main concerns. Um, I'd say they're not keeping me up at night. Um, at the at the moment, I sleep pretty well at the moment, which is good. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, AI and ML, I think 
three main things is is quality of data. Uh, there's a lot of excitement around chat GPT and all that sort of stuff, but you know what? It's only as good as the data it's fed. Garbage in, garbage out. Uh, yep. <laughs> um, yep. If anyone's done a search on, uh, on on any specific things that chat GPT is not very strong on, you know, you're going to see that, that it looks very poor when it tries to do those things. The second thing is, is the ethics. So I think there is really a... Um, open conversation and dialogue um, happening around the use of these things. Not can we do it, but more should we be doing it? Um, and, and, that, and that's going to be a very difficult one because there's lots of different perspectives and, and expectations in the community that need to be deconflicted against the realities of, of how defence and you know, warfighter operates and all those sorts of things. And then the other one in AI and ML is skills in, in the technology. It's you know it sort of sounds a bit like a broken record, but you know the the reality is um, uh, the quality of what you're going to get from a machine learning model will be highly dependent on the person who's building it um, and their and their understanding and ability to build it. Um, and so I'd say that you know that this is definitely one of the the constraints and concerns in those those technologies. Um, as we move into quantum, um, which actually isn't as far away as, as people think, um, you know, I believe uh, Google offer a, a qubit as a service now and, and those sorts of things, which is which is kind of cool. Um, my side is kind of scary because that means it's available to risk actors um, with my security hat on, um, that you're giving fantastically powerful capabilities to people that probably shouldn't have them. And and so I think really what we'll have in the short term is that disruption of encryption capabilities and those sorts of things. I think quantum will catch up very quickly. So quantum cryptography will plug that gap itself, but there will be a period where we kind of don't really necessarily trust that our existing encryption technologies are doing the job and the quantum encryption stuff really isn't there yet. So I think I think it's about how we bridge that gap and what we do in between. Mm. Um, and then looking a bit further out, a um, couple of the big things you know that are on my radar, um, one of them is obviously the Internet 2.0. Um, I think it's, I find it interesting that the, the people who create the internet are going, oh, let's go back and create another one. <laughs> um, <laughs> And this, and this time, let's do it securely. Um, and, and oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm kind of going, oh, yeah, that's good. Um, so, so that's really exciting because um, we would hope that within that, there's there's a whole bundle of um, opportunities to to um, resolve sins of the past or things that we just didn't know um, that that have emerged since the the invention of the internet. But I think coupled with that is is really the industry 4.0 kind of perspective of mm. we're moving into the post post industrial revolution, <laughs> um, and and so therefore everything's monitored. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Everything's monitored. The the concept of privacy is is now becoming like you know you talk to my kids and they they wouldn't even um, you know imagine what privacy is about and and why and why do you care like you know yeah and uh, yeah but but going further than that is 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 that idea of there's new emerging industries and and it's, it's sort of funny that that the impact when you look at you know the defence and warfighting ecosystem, uh, it could be quite significant because you know what we consider as being key assets, etc. Um, uh, you know in the world um, suddenly become less important, and so therefore, how do you position to protect these new assets? And really harder is the the fifth domain, you know, warfighting domain around cyber and those sorts of things. Are saying actually, most of the things in the industry 4.0 are going to be things in that cyberspace, and so it's really going. Well, you know, how do you conduct war 
or protect and defend uh, in that space. Um, and you know, it's it's you know um, uh, scary. Um, and and I think <laughs> I think we've had a taste of some of it um, with recent you know hacks of Medibank and 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 Optus and those sorts of things of just going, what is the impact of those things? You know, that information going out and and there is real tangible impacts uh, on people, uh, even though it's just you know ones and zeros you know out there. But you know, there, it flows on to to real life impacts on people. And and for me, it would be what's defence's role in that? Um, you know, ASD have recently uh, mobilised and and signed up with a a more aggressive posture uh, around uh, cyber actors. And that's uh, like to me is I think that's a natural progression to basically say, well, there's only so long you can defend. Um, you know, there's a point where you need to actually go and disrupt what they're doing. Um, you know, get on the front foot to keep ahead of them. You know, you can't just sit back and just hope that we're hiding behind a massive firewall will save us. Um, you know, that's not the <laughs> not reality. No, that's right. That's <laughs> not the reality. Um, and, um, you know, and so and so they're the things that I've gone, I, I think we'll be grappling with for, for a very long time um, about how to do that and how to apply that in, in our domain. Well, Tony, this has been a great discussion, very informative. Uh, very much appreciated your time today and what you've had to tell us. So uh, with that, thanks very much for coming on the show. Excellent. Thanks for your time. It's great to be here. Well, and of course, thanks to everyone for listening once again. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can follow this podcast in your favorite podcatcher to ensure you get every episode as they're released. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back in the not-too-distant future with another informative episode. The ADM Podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yaffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence, or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au, or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.